Um, I think one of the most frustrating things, and, and here you go, here's a classic example this morning, right? One of the most frustrating things about living in our technologically advanced world is when things, new things are not compatible with old things, right? It should just make sense. It should just work, but it doesn't. And I find myself encountering this problem all the time these days. Uh, this week, my older brother texted me a, uh, an app that I needed to download for my phone that just rolled out, and I was pretty excited about it. And I go to download the app, and iTunes tells me, your old phone is not compatible with this new app. And i just so angry, right? I have a whole bunch of old GameCube games that I invested in as a high school kid, and I now have a Wii for my children to play with, and I would love to show them these awesome old video games that I played, but of course, you put the disc into the Wii, and the Wii says, it's not compatible with these old games. Or I have this amazing laser printer at home that was like cutting-edge state-of-the-art in 2005. (laughs) It still works really, really well. But I updated my software, and now for some reason, the PDF documents don't print on my old printer because of the new software. So I can only print half the things I need to print. And I'm a cheapskate, so I don't like spending money on things that I think are stupid. You you can relate to that, right? The car repairs, those, (laughs) those types of things. But the truth is that sometimes you have to ditch the old when the new comes and it's better. Because the old and the new sometimes just don't work together. And maybe your children have helped you learn this lesson a little bit. You know, sometimes I try to show my kids things that were really cool when I was a kid, right? Classic, old school, throwback, awesome. And they just look at me like, what, what is this? This is stupid. <laughs> they look at the new stuff they have and the old stuff that I had, and they simply just don't understand how old school could mean better. And sometimes the old just simply isn't compatible with the new. And it's time to ditch the old and upgrade to the new. And believe it or not, I think this is the theme that we're going to encounter in our passage of Luke this morning. Jesus brings a serious new software update to this broken old operating system of religion. And I know your bulletin says that we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 17, but that's not correct. It's 27. We're just hitting on all cylinders this morning. So, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 27. You could try and download the Bible app, just make sure you have the new phone that runs the right software, (laughs) if you didn't bring your Bible. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking new wine or old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Well, we really have two scenes here where there's this idea of old and new kind of playing itself out. First, we encounter the tax collector Levi. Just so you know, Levi also goes by another name at some point, and that name is Matthew. Levi is Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But before Levi became an author, before he became a follower of Jesus, got this fresh start as one of his disciples, Levi was the lowest of the low. He was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. Now, the Jews hated tax collectors, and they had legitimate reasons for hating tax collectors, especially tax collectors like Levi, who were Jewish. First, tax collectors worked for the government of Rome, and the Jews hated the Romans because the Romans had conquered Israel and subjected them to Roman rule. They had beat them into submission. And so to be a Jewish tax collector meant that you had sold out to the bad guys, You were a traitor to Israel as far as the Jews were concerned. But the second reason the Jews hated the tax collectors was because tax collectors essentially got filthy rich by being dishonest in their job and extorting money from people. So in the case of Levi, he was essentially stealing money from his own people so that he could get rich and in the meantime pay the Roman Empire, okay? And in a time when communication meant you either walked or rode a horse somewhere, if you had a disagreement about your tax status, it was nearly impossible to get any information to correct it, okay? If you think calling the IRS and waiting on hold on the phone for an hour is a nightmare, try walking 2,200 miles from Israel to Rome to get accurate tax data to make sure that your tax man is being honest. It's just not going to happen, right? So the way this system worked was the tax collector was responsible for gathering taxes from a region and then paying those taxes to Rome. He would have a set dollar amount for the region, not for each person necessarily. So for example, let's just say, to keep it simple, for the region, he had to collect $100. Rome says, you need to pay us $100 from the people who live in this region. Well, the, taxi, or the crafty tax collector, what he would do, with all of the authority of the local Roman empire behind him, he would go out and tell each person how much of that $100 they owed. And if he could collect a total of $200 for his region, then he personally pocketed everything over the $100 that he owed Rome and became rich off the process. And of course, the system was just ripe for all kinds of abuse and dishonesty. If your tax man came to you and said, you owe $10 of the $100, not only could you not verify that it was accurate, but if you said anything to stand in opposition, he could call the local regions, the, lo- or the local legions, the local magistrate to come and take the money from you by force. And so these people were scumbags. They were more like mafia mob bosses than real human beings extorting money from people. I heard a story once, in fact, that uh, in one Roman city, actually, there was a statue that had been built to the local tax collector because the people were so thrilled that he was an honest man. They built him a statue. Can you imagine that, right? 
Some of you are like, no, actually I can't. And yet Jesus does something incredible in the life of this dishonest, traitorous man. He looks Levi in the eyes and he says to Levi, come and follow me. And Levi decides in this moment that he's going to follow Jesus. For Levi, it was like an instant operating system upgrade where the old went away and the new came. Levi could have refused and gone on with his dishonest lifestyle. He could have rejected Jesus and said that he liked his old lifestyle, his old way of life, the money, the power, the prestige even. But Levi, in that invitation from Jesus, saw something that was worth following. He saw in Jesus a warmth, a compassion that he had never experienced before in his Jewish community. And he was drawn to this man named Jesus. And in a moment, Levi walked away from his old lifestyle to trade it in for something new. And so profound, so radical was this life change for Levi that he immediately throws this huge party for Jesus to celebrate what God has done in his life. And there's two parts to this party. First, Levi is just thrilled at the fact that he has this new lease on life. And he wants to celebrate what Jesus has done in his life. He's thrilled that the old has gone and the new has come. And he's a new man. And feasts are for celebrating, right? So Levi wants to celebrate that Levi the scumbag, he's gone. And Levi, the follower of Jesus, has come. But notice who Levi invites to the party. It's his nefarious friends. The tax collectors and the sinners. The kinds of folk that respectable people would never spend their time hanging out with. But Levi has just had this incredible life change. And he wants his friends to know about Jesus and the work that Jesus has done in his life. He wants his friends to meet Jesus too. And his goal is not just to celebrate the work that God has done, but to bring Jesus into proximity to his friends in the hope that Jesus might affect and change them and upgrade their operating system too. And Levi's found this wonderful wonderful thing in Christ, and he wants those he cares about to know about it too. Well, we can assume that to some degree that does happen, but that's not the direction that Luke takes us in the story from that point on. It's possible that Jesus met Levi's friends and Jesus rubbed off on them. I think that that's probably uh, somewhat true, but the story goes in a different direction. Instead of being told about the new life that comes to some of Levi's friends when they meet Jesus, Luke rather tells us about some crabby, stuffy religious stiffs who are totally stuck on their old operating system. And they don't really care that Levi has had a radical life change and that he's a new man. All they care about is that good and respectable people like Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with bad people, sinners and tax collectors. It just doesn't look right. It's not appropriate. And these are the guys who are angry and upset because this new way of doing things that Jesus does is not compatible with their old way of living. So let me explain a little bit here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were really, really, really good people. They were so good that they would make you and me look like outlaws, bandits, pirates, scallywags, whatever word you want to use. The scribes and the Pharisees lived according to the old covenant, the law of Moses, and they did a stand-up job of it. They crossed every T, they dotted every I, they followed the Old Testament law 
in every way, shape, and form, and even more so. Okay, so for example, if the Pharisees were alive today, they might look at a road like Smith Anki out here that has a speed limit of 45 miles an hour, and they really don't want to break the law because that's bad. They don't even want to get close to breaking the law. So they would do stuff like this. They would say, you can go 45 miles an hour on that street, except don't do that between 6 and 9 a.m. and between 5 and 7 p.m. because those are heavy traffic times. During that time, you should do 43 miles an hour. And you can do 45, but you should only drive 39 if you're driving a sports car because sports cars look like they go fast, and you wouldn't want to be confused with breaking the law. And you should only do 42 miles an hour on sunny days because the sun causes your skin to release endorphins, and endorphins make you happy, and when you're happy, you drive faster. So on sunny days, just to make sure you don't break the law, do 42. These guys were so good and so moral, they made laws for their laws to make sure that they didn't do anything wrong. And they lived under this religious principle that said, I obey God Therefore, God accepts me. To say it another way, I'm a good person. Therefore, God must love me. I am good. I obey God. Therefore, God must bless me because of what I do. But the behavior of Jesus, it wasn't compatible with their old operating system, the old covenant. See, Jesus was guilty of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners And according to the scribes and the Pharisees, because God blessed people based on their behavior, these people were scumbags and evildoers, and Jesus shouldn't be associating with people who do bad things. God certainly wouldn't approve, because God only loves people who are moral and religious and good. That's the old operating system of the Pharisees. But again, we see Jesus messing everything up like he does so beautifully. He tells the scribes and the Pharisees, doctors don't go to people who are well. They don't treat patients who aren't sick. They treat patients who are sick and need them. Now, I think to some degree, the Pharisees, they actually liked that answer. They were satisfied by that answer, the hyper-religious Pharisees. Because what they heard when Jesus said that was, you don't need a doctor, you're okay. That's what they thought he was saying. And they probably agreed. We are good moral people, we don't need help. Yeah, okay Jesus, so we'll let you off the hook for that one. Okay, we agree with you, we are good people. They're not. And as long as you're working with those diseased, sick, unhealthy sinners, we're okay, we can be okay. And so they let that slide, but then they point out another problem because they just had problem after problem with the way that Jesus did things. Verse 33, they say, hey, Jesus, here's a question for you. The disciples of John, they're very religious, and they fast, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, our disciples, but, but you eat and you drink, and what's up with that? Let me interpret that for you. Jesus, you and your buddies, you're having way too much fun here. Everyone knows that religion is supposed to be dry and boring and somber and miserable. It's supposed to feel like a straitjacket, remind you about the things you're not allowed to do and all the things that you can't have. And so why in the world do you think that it's okay to go and party and have fun and enjoy your life? What in the world are you so happy about? What is there to celebrate? Now, I think there's a little bit behind the scenes I need to fill you in on here, okay? 
The Pharisees and the scribes, like I said, were so religious that they had come up with all kinds of ways to suffer so that God would see your suffering and accept you because God just loves misery. Okay, no, that's not true, but that's their worldview. One of these ways was fasting, and all of the really committed religious people did it. Okay? The guidelines were, according to the Pharisees, you should fast on the second and fifth day of the week, Monday and Thursday. Okay, the Old Testament doesn't actually command you to fast on Monday and Thursday. But these religious people told their fa- or the Jews that if they really wanted to be committed to God, then of course they would do this and God would be impressed. Remember the whole speed limit thing? You can go 45, but really you should just do 43 so that you don't break the law, right? Laws for the laws to make God love you by, based on what you do. But they also made one exception to this rule about fasting. When a couple got married, they wouldn't go away on a honeymoon. Instead, they would open up their house for a week and they would entertain all kinds of guests, family members, friends, visitors, as they partied and they celebrated this new life together. And so the religious leader said, you should absolutely fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but there's one exception. When you're going to the party of a bride and a groom who just got married, then you can pass on the fasting because you're celebrating, okay? And so this is what Jesus is talking about. The old operating system that had been corrupted by the virus of legalism said that in order for God to love you, in order for you to impress God, you had to fast, you had to be gloomy, you had to suffer and be miserable, you had to obey the laws of the laws of the laws. But Jesus uses this beautiful picture to reveal that God is doing a new thing. And the old operating system of religious ritual and legalism is being replaced by a new and better system. And the two are not compatible. It's time for a serious system upgrade. Jesus, the groom, Jesus, the groom has come to marry his bride. The party has started and the wedding feast is now taking place. And it would be so inappropriate to go to a wedding feast dressed in black and mourning like a funeral, right? Weddings are for celebrating the union of two lives becoming one. And Jesus has come to unite lost and broken people to a God who's been pursuing them because he loves them. The bride, the church, the people of God have been taken up into the arms of their Redeemer. The bridegroom who's chosen to wed himself to these broken sinners despite the fact that they're far from him and undeserving. The grace of God has been revealed and there's no greater reason to celebrate. The bridegroom has come. He loves his bride. Forget the somber religious legalism of the old covenant. It's time for joy in this new thing that God is doing to save and to redeem. And then to further clarify the change that's taking place, Jesus tells three short parables. The Pharisees sometimes were a little bit dense. So he had to keep coming at them with different illustrations and analogies. First, he says, if you want to fix a hole in an old cotton t-shirt, you can't patch that hole with a brand new patch. When you sew the patch to cover the hole and then you wash it, what's going to happen? The new patch is going to shrink and it's going to rip the hole open all over again. The old is not compatible with the new. 
Similarly, when you make a fresh batch of wine, you can't store that wine in old used wineskins. New wine has to go through this process of fermentation. And when wine ferments, it creates gases. It expands. Old wineskins have lost their elasticity. They don't stretch. And so if you put new wine into them, as it ferments, it expands and the old skins explode. And you lose everything because they can't withstand the pressure. And so again, the old is not compatible with the new. The somber legalism of the Pharisees has no place in the joyful celebration of restoration that comes through Christ. The works righteousness of the system, I obey, therefore God accepts me, is garbage. It's been replaced by something better, a groom who loves his bride and accepts us and sets us free to obey. And finally, Jesus says one last thing that's super confusing because he used this illustration of wine And this is actually a third illustration that needs to be separated. Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. You're like, you read that, you're like, wait, I thought he just said that the old is bad and the new is good, right? Jesus does this little switch here that I think could cause us to misunderstand. He's been saying up to this point, the new is better and it replaces the old. The religious gloom of Pharisee legalism is out because Jesus has brought the new celebration of the wedding feast. But here Jesus says that nobody who has had the old wine wants the new because the old is good. The old wine is better. It's just an illustration. So you could look at it this way. When something uh, better is being offered to you, you, you don't take the lesser thing. You would never buy a 24-inch TV for $50 if the same store was selling a 60-inch TV for $50, right? Okay, you would never drive to California and go mini-golfing when you could drive to California and go to Disneyland for the same price, right? You would never choose a demotion and a pay cut at work when your boss is offering you a promotion and a raise, right? Because one is better, And anyone who's had some fabulous aged wine knows that a glass of new wine that's only been aging for a month is not going to be good in comparison. And so when you have something that's good, you don't trade it in for something of lesser value. Hebrews 8 through 10 10 helps us understand, but 8.6 specifically says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The old covenant served a purpose. It helps us to see that we're in dire straits, that sin has wrecked us and left us bankrupt and broken. The old covenant, which said, love God with all your heart and obey him and he will bless you, But the Pharisees and the Jews, they couldn't even keep that one simple commandment. Love God. They didn't actually love God. Although they fasted and they stayed away from the corrupting company of sinners and tax collectors, although they would never break the speed limit, they didn't actually love God in the process. They kept the rules, but they did it with cold and lifeless hearts. So here's what we need to understand, okay? The Pharisees 
are really just caricatures of all of us. This is where we come into the picture. The human heart, by default, does not actually love God. The human heart, by nature, loves itself. You and I, left to our own devices, we don't naturally love God. And this is so true. This this state of the human heart as fallen is so true that even redeemed Christians sometimes fall back into this default self-centeredness through temptation. Like the Pharisees, we can get caught up in religious rituals that cause us to obey God's commands to be moral and holy yet we never actually give God our heart in the process. And so we're obedient but unloving towards God. And the Pharisees, they followed all the rules. They lived righteous and holy lives. They followed and obeyed God's commands. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They gave God lip service, but they never fell in love with Him. But God doesn't want stone-hearted, dead and lifeless worshipers. God wants a bride. God wants a people who love him, whose hearts are enamored by his beauty, who are drawn to him. God wants a people for himself who want nothing more than to be in his presence and enjoy his glory forever. And so Jesus came to upgrade the old operating system that was incompatible with loving God. Human heart 2.0. Jesus came to install new hearts into the people who believe in him. Hearts capable of loving him. Hearts drawn to him. Hearts with the capacity to see his beauty and enjoy him. Hearts that by default could and would love God and despise religion. Hearts that love the sound of his voice and respond when he calls. And so here's the point. The old has gone, the new has come. If your faith is in Jesus, then he has saved you and you have had that heart 2.0 upgrade. And it doesn't matter whether you were a tax collector and a sinner or a self-righteous, cold-hearted, hypocritical Pharisee. Your sick heart has been redeemed by Jesus, the healer. And the old is gone, the new has come. And the result is this. The result is that you are now free to have as much of God as your heart desires. You're free to have as much of God as your new heart desires. Drinking the better wine of the blood of Jesus has liberated you from sin and death, from hypocrisy, from religion, and from the temptation of self-righteousness. And you're now free to have as much of God as your new heart desires. You can open the floodgates and he will pour into your thirsty heart until you are full. And think about that for a second. My brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christians who have put your faith in Jesus, do you want just a little bit of God? You're free to have it. But what if you wanted a lot of God? What if you took advantage of your freedom and you drank to the dregs the better wine of the new covenant? And wouldn't you rather ask God for a greater desire for him that he can fill? so he can give you all that you desire in his son, Jesus? 